Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. April 27th, 1981, and George Mulvaney is sitting in the back of a truck outside of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It's the dead of night. The truck is parked at a marina, and the back doors are open. George can't see much, but he probably knows that he's in trouble. There's a bright light shining right into his eyes, and he hears a voice call out through a loudspeaker. You in the van, this is the FBI. You are under arrest. We are opening the van doors. Come out one at a time with your hands up. Behind the light, there are 30 law enforcement agents. The jig is up. I could see nothing except for blinding lights that shine directly into my eyes. Hands in the air, I faced a SWAT team of hard-faced men wearing black paramilitary uniforms and bulletproof vests with FBI stamped across their chest. Automatic rifles trained right on me. That was a bad time. There were nine men with George, seven of them in the truck with him and two others in a van. They'd driven through the night to get here, but they'd all made choices long before then that had landed them in the back of that truck on that day. The van, also parked at the marina and also surrounded by the FBI, is stuffed full of whiskey, rafts, fatigues, first aid kits, walkie-talkies, a swastika flag, 20 sticks of dynamite, and guns. A lot of guns. Around 30 high-powered weapons. They'd had a plan. There was a boat waiting for them. They'd load the guns and the supplies onto the boat, get on, and then head off to the tiny Caribbean island of Dominica. It was supposed to be a pretty straightforward operation. Sail for Dominica, land on the beach, take over the one police station in town, and then break out the former prime minister from jail. And it had almost worked. George Mulvaney, at 21, was the youngest of the group. He'd been kicked out of the Navy after recruiting a bunch of his shipmates into the Ku Klux Klan. We had recruited about 5% of the ship's force before the Navy finally got wind of it. Of the seven other people sitting in the truck with George, some of them are familiar names today. There's Don Black, who would go on to start up Stormfront, the biggest white supremacist forum on the internet. And then there's Wolfgang Droga, the neo-Nazi who co-founded the Canadian KKK and the Heritage Front, and one of the most influential neo-Nazis to ever come out of Canada. If it had all gone according to plan, this crew would have staged a coup, taken over Dominica. Then this cabal of white supremacist mercenaries would have had the run of the place. They could run drugs and arms, set up offshore banking, and use the island as a piggy bank for the global white supremacist movement. And this plan, hatched over years and across nations, had its roots right here in Canada. On this season of Commons, we're looking at the radical movements that have shaped Canada, for good and for ill. 
and there are few movements that have done more harm at home and abroad than Canada's white supremacists. Canada's long been a haven for neo-Nazis and Klansmen, but in that long history, there's one event that stands out. They called it Operation Red Dog. It was one of the most audacious plots in North American history. A handful of people trying to take over an independent nation and turn it into a criminal haven. It was an unholy alliance of North American white supremacists and domestic coup plotters. And if it had succeeded, it would have provided millions of dollars for white supremacists to do with as they wished. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. So how did Dominica, a small Caribbean island that's 95% black, end up being the destination for an imagined white supremacist criminal state? Well, Dominica is a small country. It's a beautiful island. It's very mountainous. That's Stuart Bell. He's an investigative journalist for Global News and the author of Bayou of Pigs, the true story of an audacious plot to turn a tropical island into a criminal paradise. It doesn't have really great beaches, and the mountains have made it a difficult place for planes to land. So it's really, in some ways, because it hasn't really developed as a tourist trap, it's remained a very authentic Caribbean kind of place. Just a you know really, really gorgeous island that just kind of juts right out of the Caribbean, just really, really steep mountains and waterfalls. Dominica is not the kind of country that normally becomes involved in global geopolitics. But in the late 70s and 80s, the Caribbean was becoming another battlefield in the war between capitalism and communism. There was a proxy Cold War going on between Soviet Union and the United States, where Soviets were pushing for influence in various countries, trying to spread sort of socialism, and the U.S. was trying to counter that by supporting their own factions. And ground zero for that fight became the nearby country of Grenada. Since independence, Grenada had been ruled by a man named Eric Gehry. Gehry was born and raised on the island and came to prominence standing up for unions, but as prime minister, he was better known for his corruption, his brutality, and his obsession with UFOs, which he constantly tried to get onto the UN agenda. 
Its opposition to his corrupt and repressive regime was fueled by embarrassment at his antics on the international stage. He regularly appealed to the United Nations for an international study of unidentified flying objects. But in 1979, Eric Gehry was overthrown in a Marxist revolution. And Maurice Bishop took his place, establishing warm relations with Cuba and the Soviet Union. And the United States began to worry. The real reason for all of this hostility is because some perceive that what is happening in Grenada can lay the basis for a new socio-economic and political path of development. It wasn't just the U.S. government who was concerned about the spread of communism. Right-wing Americans were worried, too. Some even wanted to take matters into their own hands. People like Mike Perdue. Perdue was a self-styled mercenary, the kind of man who would talk vaguely of adventures in Central Africa and a member of the KKK to boot. He avidly read Soldier of Fortune magazine and was a big fan of the book Dogs of War, which was about a small band of mercenaries orchestrating a coup in a far-off country. In 1980, they turned it into a movie starring Christopher Walken. You see, the way the tax situation is out there, the land cost you practically nothing. All you've got to do is put a house on it and stay there. But this guy's telling me you can get a trailer, put it on the land. The government doesn't know the difference. They don't care. Purdue figured it wouldn't be so hard to get a group of men together, invade the island, and overthrow the communist government, just like in Dogs of War. And so he took the idea to the one man who could benefit most, former Grenadian Prime Minister Eric Gehry, who had taken asylum in the U.S. Gehry signed on and Purdue got to work. The first person he reached out to was David Duke, the former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Duke gave Purdue a few numbers to reach out to. One of them belonged to a home on the east side of Toronto. Eventually, Purdue got in touch with the man who would define Canada's white supremacist movement for the next few decades, Wolfgang Droga. He was from Germany originally, came to Canada as as a youth, and, you know, fell in with, with kind of Nazism. He was for that generation that, you know, he'd grown up on his grandfather's knee hearing stories about Nazism, but not necessarily negative stories. Here's Wolfgang Droga doing an interview with his fellow racist traveler, Ernst Zundel, in the 1980s. My ideas were always to uh, fight for the interests of uh, of the white race for our own kind. And when I uh, and I was born in Germany, of course, I uh, my uh, strong nationalistic up- upbringings. And I uh, came to Canada when I was 13 years old. And at that time, Canada was basically an almost all-white country. I noticed the influx of uh, colors. Even so, the um, population was opposed to the influx of non-whites into the country. It seemed, uh, seemed to me the government uh, was, uh, was intended on bringing in even more. Droga had co-founded the Canadian branch of the KKK a few years earlier and was becoming a staple on the evening news. He was a, actually a pretty charismatic guy. I mean, that was his one skill, was he was a good at talking to people and bringing them over to his cause. I think anybody who's known him will tell you that. He was very successful at recruiting people to do different jobs, take on different assignments. Purdue got in touch with Droga, and he told him his plan. He wanted to invade Grenada and overthrow the government, 
But first, they needed a base of operations. And that's where Dominica came in. So we were looking at the country of Dominica, where we felt because it was underdeveloped, we could operate from without, uh, without fearing repercussions from the, from the government. But soon it became clear that their plan to take over Grenada wouldn't work out. The Grenadian forces had a decent number of weapons, and even more importantly, they had battle-hardened Cuban troops, many of whom had fought in the Angolan Civil War. But Purdue and Droga had already come too far, so they decided to stick with the plan and just invade Dominica instead. Dominica didn't have a communist government, but Droga and Purdue believed that if they overthrew the government there, they could use the island to finance white supremacist movements in North America and Europe. And, of course, make themselves quite rich at the same time. The far right has always been looking for some kind of golden goose that they could use to finance. If we could just, you know, just make enough money, we could get our cause moving. We could convince people to come around. We could do this and that. And I think that was the that was the real prize that Wolfgang Drogi saw. Not so much to have a KKK island as it was to have a source of revenue that they could use to finance the sort of North American and global right-wing extremist movement. And that was the scary thing about this thing. Had it succeeded, uh, had they managed to have a source of that kind of uh, money, they could have done a lot of damage with that. They would have their own country. Like Grenada, Dominica had only become independent from Britain in the 1970s. And a man named Patrick John was elected to be the first prime minister. He's a man with a reputation for toughness. He negotiated development aid worth $20 million from Britain, help of the sort he believes the island desperately needs. We asked him how he sees the future of Dominica under independence. Dominica is a very small country with limited resources. We believe that after independence, it is imperative on our nation to utilize the human resources that we've got and also our natural resources. But his reign was short. Mass protests brought him down only after a year. And then in 1980, Dominica was devastated by Hurricane Allen. The island's politics and economy were in complete disarray. The island was defended by something, you know, it's a very small defense force that just appeared the kind of place... Uh, very easily be taken over by an armed force landing from the outside, coming from sea. Dominica was ripe for the taking, and Wolfgang Droga and Mike Perdue began to plan their invasion. So the ex-Prime Minister Patrick John wanted to get back to power, and Perdue said this coup was going to reinstall him. On the other hand, he convinced the Klansmen and the far right in Canada that this was going to be a benefit to them. They would have uh, an island of their own, which they could use to generate funds, tons of money that they could pour into their cause. That was the genius of Mike Perdue. That's the one thing he was able to do, was to somehow convince all these people that this was in their interest. And now to be clear, the vast majority of Dominicans are black, including almost all of the political class. And yet, here we had a bunch of neo-Nazis, Klansmen, and other assorted white supremacists attempting a coup to reinstate a black prime minister. It's unclear if Patrick John knew who he was dealing with, but Droga and Purdue didn't particularly care. They wanted the money. 
Here's Droga again. But of course, Patrick Chan never knew who he was dealing with. As far as he was concerned, he only was dealing with a bunch of mercenaries who were willing to uh, install him as, uh, as the prime minister. And he only was going to act as a figurehead. He could get on with our business dealings, which in turn could have provided us over, a, let's say, a five-year period with literally hundreds of millions of dollars. Droga had big plans. He wanted to manufacture cocaine on the island. He wanted to run guns and sell them to anyone and everyone around the world. And he and his cronies would have had the imprimatur of a United Nations state and everything that goes along with it. The fact that these white supremacists were allying themselves with black Caribbean people didn't bother them one bit. I was willing to use any group or people to advance our cause. I wouldn't uh, betray one of my own, my own comrades but I am willing to work with anyone to help our our cause. We had the the former prime minister was an, was uh, willing to um, collaborate with us. So was the whole Dominican Defense Force. Droga and Purdue began assembling their mercenary army. They put out ads in Soldier Fortune magazine. They reached out to their white supremacist colleagues, and they tried to appeal to the anti-communist sentiments of right-wing businessmen. Purdue was a con man. He was looking for angles, and his angle for Grenada was that he could appeal to financiers in the United States who would want to spend some money to counter the communist influence. The only problem was that the Dominican government just wasn't communist. Eugenia Charles, who had replaced Patrick John as prime minister, was a close U.S. ally. Here she is talking about the plot many years later. Patrick John had thought that he was the first prime minister and he should be prime minister forever. He continued to plot against the state with the weirdest group of people from North America, both Canada and the States. Ku Klux Klan, Nazis, and all sorts of funny people. people. All of them had one thing in common. They don't like black people. And yet he was plotting with them for them to take over this country. Slowly, Droga and Purdue got their plan moving. They traveled down to Dominica to surveil the situation and do reconnaissance on the island. They built up a small arsenal, and they liaised with the Dominican Defense Forces, which were on the side of Patrick John. When this white supremacist crew arrived on the island, they would have the support of the Dominican military. But the plan fell apart even before it started. The Dominican government got wind of an upcoming coup, and they arrested Patrick John and his fellow plotters on the island and disbanded the Dominican defense forces. Droga and Purdue had wanted the coup to look like it was being led by Dominicans and for them to remain in the shadows. But that was looking increasingly impossible. They decided to push through anyways. The potential windfall was just too lucrative. Here's Droga again. And of course... For us to make in, to uh, actually make any serious money, we had to overthrow the government, have our have our own people in the top positions, bring in outside investors. They in turn their investments would be protected by our forces, and um, and we would rake in a percentage of their profits. First of all, if we're running the country, we're not concerned too much with illegalities. We're the ones running the show. The most important thing they needed was a way to get to the island. 
So they did what any self-respecting group of racist mercenaries would do. They went to a marina in New Orleans and started asking random people if they could hire them. And they ended up with uh, a guy named Mike Howell. And Mike, man, he, he was such a character. Mike had been a Vietnam vet. He served in a, in a helicopter. He lost his arm in Vietnam. And he lived on his boat. And uh, he, he had one prosthetic arm. I remember when I went to see him, I jumped on his boat. And his dogs were running around with his arm, his prosthetic arm in their mouth, playing with it. And he had to sort of, you know, where's my arm? And fight the dogs to get his arm back and strap it back on. Purdue told Mike Howell that they were going to hire his ship for a research expedition. But Howell wasn't an idiot, and he saw right through them. He eventually got the real story out of them and decided to tip off a friend of his who worked for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. And pretty soon, the one-armed former helicopter pilot was going undercover for the feds, and he brought two ATF agents to pose as members of his crew. And so the thing was compromised very early on because Mike Howell, the, the ship captain, was just so kind of expertly played them. And they, they thought they were playing everybody else. They were being played. Everybody was conning each other. And just like Mike Perdue's mercenary coup, the ATF agents were right out of a Hollywood movie. Two really funny guys. You know, when I I went to New Orleans to, to meet them and interview them, and uh, they were just amazing characters. Uh, Lloyd Grafton kind of built like a spark plug. Looks kind of like Burt Reynolds, maybe, with a mustache really strong guy John Osborne you know blonde and and very kind of intellectual but just kind of funny guys Wolfgang Droga said he thought everything was going just fine I got the impression they knew each other for quite a length, length of time so that that uh, eased my suspicions so at this point the whole plot was compromised and soon the Canadian authorities would also learn about it from a different source James McWhorter, the head of the Canadian KKK, was working on the mission as well. But McWhorter liked media attention, so he invited a radio reporter, a young guy named Gord Civil, along for the ride. you got to remember that uh, guys like this, you know, there's vanity. There's also, you know, extremists of all types. They don't like to work in silence. They want everybody to know what they're doing and what they are. Because the message is so central to to what they do. I mean, it's all about attracting recruits and followers to, to their cause. So they had this idea of bringing in a journalist to basically travel with them and document their little invasion and just, you know, to some extent um, provide their propaganda that they rely upon. Civil had the scoop of a century on his hands, and his editors insisted that he not tell the authorities. But Civil felt that he had to do something, so he quietly gave a tip to a cop friend of his, and soon enough, the information was passed up to the highest levels. The authorities in three different countries knew everything. The only question left was whether this strange cabal of would-be insurgents would go out quietly or with a bang. The night before they were going to take off in the boat, the ten conspirators all met in a day's inn in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. This was the first time they'd all met. 
Some of them exchanged stories about Vietnam. Others asked Mike Perdue questions about how the operation was actually going to go down. But Perdue was saving that for the two-week journey to Dominica. They had some beers, took a nap, and then got ready to go at 6 p.m. They drove down to the marina. Here's George Mulvaney again, speaking to Mississippi Public Radio. Oh, yeah, we had a, we were, we'd been placed in a van, and uh, we were in some marina right outside of Slidell, Louisiana, and it come, we were pulling up and preparing, we are going to get on a boat and actually leave to go down there, and uh, the van shuts off, and then I hear this uh, moment or two later, over a loudspeaker, you in the van, this is the FBI, you are under arrest, and uh, the rest is history. Well, we were actually arrested right in the marina. As we were coming out of the trucks, you know, uh, spotlights came on. They had, uh, they had sh- uh, metal shields, they had uh, machine guns and so on. And uh, they were ready, ready pointed at the van as we were coming out. Of course, they just arrested us. All 10 of them were arrested and charged under the Neutrality Act and for a variety of other offenses. Mike Perdue, who had the idea to do all of this in the first place, was the first person to flip. In fact, it turned out that Perdue hadn't been a mercenary at all. Even though he portrayed himself as a mercenary, he was basically a fraud artist. He was a guy looking for easy money. Many of the others also decided to plead guilty. George Mulvaney got a reduced sentence in a youth facility and would eventually turn his life around. Today, he's renounced his KKK past and works as an environmental regulator. We were actually scheduled to speak to him on Monday, but he got pulled away to help with the COVID-19-related cleanup at the Utah Jazz Arena. Seven out of the ten would plead guilty, and the other three were convicted in court. All of them served prison time in the U.S., but within a few years, they were all out. In Dominica, a coup to reinstate Patrick John eventually did take place, but it failed. And soon after that, the United States would invade Grenada and overthrow the communist regime there with the full-throated support of the Dominican government. Despite all of their machinations, the whole thing was an abject failure. Throughout this whole thing, there you can go back point by point by point and say, what? Why did you do that? But you know, uh, they weren't the brightest guys, and they were very committed to what they were doing. And I don't know. They just, yeah, they just decided to keep going. Operation Red Dog may have failed, but it became a kind of foundational myth for many North American hate mongers. While in prison, Don Black learned computer programming. A decade later, he would launch Stormfront, one of the most toxic cesspits on the internet. Well, on the Canadian side, I think Wolfgang Drogi came out of it with even greater status than he already had. Drogi was able to come back and kind of recover from what was, in truth, pretty embarrassing time in his life. And yet he emerged as the new kind of leader of the far right in Canada. Wolfgang Droga would go on to found the Heritage Front, an attempt to unify the far right racists of Canada. 
So the Heritage Front was meant to be a national nationalist organization that would eventually have a sway in politics, maybe even elect get people elected in federal politics. For a few years, the Heritage Front was a terrifying force in Canada, bringing out hundreds of people to its rallies. But it too soon collapsed. Just like Operation Red Dog, it had been compromised. One of its co-founders was a CSIS infiltrator. By 2005, Drogo was dealing cocaine out of his Scarborough apartment. He was shot to death by one of his clients. Stuart Bell has been following violent extremists of all kinds for decades. And whether it's white supremacists or ISIS, he sees something in common with all of them. They get drawn into the kind of extremes that they read about or see on TV. and They want to be part of it. They want to feel important. They want to feel that they're, they've got some purpose beyond whatever is happening in their lives. And beyond that, we're talking mostly about young men. And so it's the, the kind of action-adventure component that maybe they find attractive as well. So you have men in their early 20s who see the opportunity to be involved in something exciting and adventurous and bombs and guns, and at the same time, kind of fill a hole in their soul in the sense that it's a, an easy way of believing that you've found some purpose and meaning beyond yourself. That's your episode of Commons for the week. This episode relied on reporting done by Stuart Bell, Gord Civil, and Mississippi Public Radio. This is the first episode of our new season, Radicals. And if things sound a bit different than usual, it's because we had to make this while self-isolating. You're currently hearing me while under my desk with a blanket covering it. This is going to be a bit of a transition for us, so we hope you'll stick around and hear some of the incredible stories we've got coming up for you. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, Arshi, at CanadaLandShow.com. This episode was produced by myself and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. And our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. You can support us and get ad-free podcasts by going to Patreon.com slash CanadaLand.